This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Diversity at Facebook is a huge issue. I asked product designer John Angelo how having a diverse workforce affects what Facebook creates. Because you make, because we're making a product that is for everybody, it's important to have a uh, an employee base that is everybody, <laughs> because it's you know not it's, it's impossible for you know uh, you know one demographic to understand and create something that's enjoyable uh, for everyone. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Join more than 15 million people who use MailChimp to not only send emails, but to grow their businesses on their own terms. Start sending professional-looking newsletters to your clients today for absolutely free. You know, MailChimp also just opened up free marketing automation tools for all their customers. So whether you send just a regular email newsletter to your clients or you do e-commerce, there's something in there that you can use which can really turbocharge your email marketing efforts. Send the right message to the right people at exactly the right time for absolutely free. MailChimp. Send better email. When you have a great idea for a project, you need to give it a great domain name. And guess what? Finding that perfect domain name is ridiculously easy with Hover. Most people don't realize that when you register a domain with your contact information, it's published in this Whois database, which spammers and hackers can use to get into your inbox. I'm pretty sure we've all gotten these messages from people and we're like, how did they get my email address? That's probably how. And you know, unlike some other companies, Hover includes free Whois privacy with all supported domains to keep your information confidential. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's hover.com forward slash revision path. Hover, domain names for your ideas. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional, business, or enterprise projects. So whether you're building something custom or you're using a CMS like WordPress, SiteGround lets you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple hosting options that your websites can grow into. And we've got a fantastic deal for you. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all their hosting plans. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with architect, academic, author, and activist Craig Wilkins. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Craig Wilkins, and I'm an architect. I'm an author. I'm an activist and I'm an academic. I rarely see a line in between those things, but I believe that I have to be specific about that when I'm talking to other people outside my own head. I got so, you. That's what I do. Well, there's an additional A that you can add to that. Am I right? What, an award, <laughs> an award winner? Award winner, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I, yeah, I was just awarded this year's National Design Award from the Smithsonian Institution, the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum, in the category of Design Mind. 
And I was very, very surprised, honored, and taken aback, actually, by when I was notified that I was nominated. And then when I won, I had to sit down (laughs) and take a breath. But yeah, I won. Congratulations to you. Thank you very much. It was uh, a surprise. Why do you think it was a surprise? The things that I'm interested in are very specific. They can help a broad swath of people, communities, institutions, disciplines, but it's very, very specific. And I can sort of put it this way. When Steve Harvey was returning to the airways, he had briefly had a radio show in Chicago and he had walked away from it and he was gone for some time. And then when he was returning back to the airwaves, he asked, and this is Steve's telling the story, he had asked Tom Joyner for some advice because Tom was the king of, of African-American radio at the time. And mm-hmm. maybe not just that, but he, he said that Tom Joyner told him not to go broad and wide, but to be narrow and deep. So don't listen to people who tell you that you have to appeal to a broad swath of folk, that you only have to appeal to yourself. And so he said, go broad and deep. And that's basically what I do. What I write about is very specific to people of color and architecture, people of color in the design professions. And so I was very surprised that I was nominated and won because my work is very specific. And, you know, the design professions are not. They're not very, let's say that people of color are not necessarily broadly represented in the field. So for them to sort of focus and say that that's a very important topic and important enough for us to award it, to give it an award, that's why I was surprised. Well, yeah, again, congratulations to you, because I mean, it's not just a award, it's like the design award, the National Design Award, and you winning it makes you the second African-American to win the award, the first one, and we talked about this before we recorded, but first one was Stephen Burks, who won in 2015 for furniture design and now you're winning in 2017 for design mind slash visionary that's quite an accomplishment so congratulations to you thank you very much i want to touch on something that you mentioned there about like going narrow and deep and and how you sort of tied that into into just black people i think in general i first heard about you in 2015 at the black and design conference at uh Mm -hmm. Harvard, I think it was Harvard uh, grad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember you specifically because it was part of a panel. They were doing these, if you remember, they were doing these panels that kind of focused on the city, the region, et cetera, kind of zooming out, mm-hmm. see how design takes place in these specific spaces. And I remember you specifically because you were, you know, addressing the crowd and you were, were moved to tears because of the number of people of color there that were not just attending, but also just kind of presenting as well. Yeah, it was a powerful moment. And it actually had been building. Like my panel, that my panel was the second day of the conference. Mm-hmm. And so the first day of the conference, it was just, it was taking in all these very accomplished, intelligent, talented, creative people that are dispersed all over the country. 
I'm sure there were folks from all over the world, actually, but it was from folks all over, I know from all over the country, older folks who had been in the fields of design professions who were in their 70s, and then young folks who were still going to school at, you know, at, at Harvard or mm-hmm. Cologne and other places. It was just, it was a magical moment for me. It was like, you know, this does, you're not alone. You're not out there doing things alone. And it's important that we support and recognize and celebrate the contributions that we bring to the field. And it, by the time my panel came up, I think it was the next to the last panel. Yeah, I was, I was just overcome. I was just overcome. I was very proud and honored to be there. And even thinking about it now, I get a little, I get a little forclumped. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hear that they are having it again this year. I think we're kind of still waiting to see, you know, plans about when it's going to be and everything. But when I last spoke to some folks there, actually, I think it was last year, either late last year, or early this year. But they said they were going to try to do it every other year. So there might be, hopefully, fingers crossed, knock on wood, sure. be another Black and Design conference this year in 2017. I hope so. And I know they, were, they did, there were some satellite conferences. Like there was a Black and Design conference at, uh, and I think it was actually called Satellite, at Louisiana State, LSU, Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. And there might have been some other ones across, the, just sort of scattered about. So I do, I do hope they continue to do this maybe biannually, biannually, and then other folks might pick up smaller, but sort of like the TED Talks, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that would be great. Yeah, I know I was trying to get more people to go to it because when I heard about it, I mean, of course, you know, I, I do the podcast. I was like, oh, I'm going. I'm going because mm-hmm. I've been, you know, a designer for over 10 years now. And I'm like, I've never been to a a black design event. I had heard about black design events from organizations like the Organization of Black Designers, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. I'd never been to one. And so I, mm-hmm. when I heard about it, I said, oh, I'm I'm going. The tickets were cheap. I'm mm-hmm. going. And I was trying to get more people to go, more designers I knew to go. But I think they were turned off by it because... The focus of the event wasn't on digital design uh, or product yeah. design. It was more so about architecture, sure. urban planning. And I was like, we should still go. Like, how <laughs> how often is this kind of event going to happen? Like, go and support. The tickets are $50. Let's go. Right. Uh, and I mean, for me, it was an experience where, you know, I felt affirmed as a designer and as a black person. And it's it's very rare that I get to go to events where I can get that kind of an equal parts, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, um, that's, that's what I was talking about. That feeling that like you are validated, you know? Yeah. And that you even if have... you're not like a digital, I mean, even if you're not a, you know, architect or urban planner, but you can see how people are taking design, this, this profession that we all practice in one form or another using whatever tools we use, but how we take design and apply it to kind of real world situations. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, at the very least, you come to this conference because, you know, there might be clients here. You know, architects are always looking to include the, you know, the next, the sort of the next graphic leap to make their work look better. They're Mm -hmm. always looking to sort of create the perfect presence. I mean, it's, you know, at the very least, you come for that. But to find out what other folks are doing and how and how design design can impact the lives of black people. I mean, I would come just, I would come just for that. Even if I was not, if it wasn't in my discipline, I would just come just to see that. Yeah. And I mean, that event was packed. 
Yeah. It was standing room only. I remember both days. It was packed. There certainly was not a sparsely attended event. I think people had certainly came internationally. I know that. But, I mean, I was coming from Atlanta. There were people I knew that had came from California and, you know, parts out west. So it certainly was an event that drew people. And I think if they have it again this year, it's going to sell out. Yeah, usually when Harvard calls, people come running. So <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. It's, it's, it's just true. It, you know, it gives it a certain kind of gravitas that, uh, oh, OK, this is going to be something It's going to be worth my time, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I, w- I was not surprised to see it fully attended, but I was very heartened by the fact that it was so full of people and so full of creative folks and so full of joy and so full of, I mean, no one was there. There was no one like angry and we got to do this. We gotta, no, it was just, yeah. it was just, this is what we do. And we should be, we should be showing folks how well we do it. And I was very, very happy to be part of it. Yeah. There was just like this spirit of, to me, it just kind of felt like a warm spirit of joy throughout both days mm-hmm. uh, that, I don't know. I've not. I mean, I've I've been to South by Southwest. I've been to How Design Live. I've been to other design types of you know events like this, and none of them have felt like like a hug from home. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Very much so. Both days. Yeah. Very much so. In the early in the early years of the uh, organization of Black designers, the conferences were very much like that. They were, and that was that was all designers. So it was graphic design, architecture, urban design, fashion design, mm-hmm. filmmakers. It was just all of that. And it just felt like, you know, get your design on, man. This is great. I'm glad <laughs> to be here. Really, it did it really did feel that way. So yeah. Now for but they don't they don't happen often. Yeah, that's true. Now for those who weren't at the event, can you uh, can you talk about what you presented and, and what you uh, you mentioned at the event? Yeah, certainly. My session, my panel, like they started small and then they got big. So my session was the last one right before the keynote speaker. So that was the, the that was region. Yeah. Right. That was the regional one. And so so what I spoke about and, and there were four different people on the panel. And one was a historian. Another one was a young lady who did uh, creative farming and um, social practice work. And uh, I think I want to say Mississippi, I, Alabama, I, I think it, Alabama. It was, a, it was okay. a, I remember her. It was Unica Rogers sip because yes, she, yes, do, yes. she does it or she was doing it right around my hometown where I grew up. I'm from Selma, Alabama. Okay. All right. And yeah. she was uh, a lot of her work is right around in that area, like Lowndes County, Dallas mm-hmm. County area. Mm-hmm. And so my talk was about Detroit, specifically about Detroit and how you know, Detroit has a lot of space and it feels like uh, because, because there, you know, people have been leaving for the longest time and a lot of abandoned homes there. So Detroit, one of the things that Detroit has as a, that's an asset that often is kind of overlooked and looked as, as a, as a detriment, but it has an asset, it has land. And so my talk was about looking at Detroit and, and practicing in Detroit and thinking about it regionally there's a long-term thing so you can practice in a city like new york and only focus on new york because it's so dense Mm -hmm. you know the the things are so you can really sort of fine-tune or become narrow-minded or narrow-minded is not the right term but you can you can narrowly focus is probably better but in detroit it's it's not you really can't 
it's hard to think that way. You can if you want to, but I think it's much more creative and much more important to think of the city as a region, you know, because it's actually needing to tap into other resources outside the city itself. It's not so internally focused. And so that's kind of what I was talking about. How do you approach the city itself as a region and how do you tie it to a larger region, a larger network that actually has resources and makes people want to become part of Detroit and Detroit become part of its neighbors, for lack of a better term. Now, you're originally from Detroit, is that right? No, I'm originally from Chicago. Okay. Yeah, I'm originally from Chicago. I did uh, my undergraduate work. I got my undergraduate degree from the University of Detroit, and then I left, and 20 years later, I find myself back in the same place. What draws you to the city? (sighs) You know, that's an interesting question. I guess I'm a city person by nature, I guess. It was just in... Part of my growing up in Chicago is just sort of infused in me. It's in my bones. I'm always, I always feel more comfortable in an urban area. Like I've lived in Chicago and obviously Detroit and Washington, D.C. And, you know, I've lived in Brazil, New York. Yeah, I just like cities. I just like the urban, urban environment. But what drives me to Detroit specifically these days is opportunity. The city is on the, on the cusp of a, I think, what will be a monumental rebirth. And as a urbanist, as someone who's interested in cities, as a designer, who's someone who's interested in architecture, as a writer, as someone who is interested in sort of chronicling, observing, and theorizing uh, about the power of the urban environment, there I can't imagine there being a better place to be. And then throw on top of that, the city is 80% African-American. It's just the perfect place for me to be. Now, talk to me kind of about your, your early career. You said you went to undergrad there, University of Detroit. Mm-hmm. When you graduated and you were there in the city, what was it like then? It's going to make me sound somewhat like a hypocrite, but just stay with me. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I came to University of, De- I came to University of Detroit. It's now called University of Detroit Mercy, but it was University of Detroit at the time from growing up in Chicago. And I thought Chicago was the greatest city on earth. So when I came to Detroit, I was like, eh, you know, it's, this is okay, but it's no Chicago. Yeah. And it was at a time when Detroit was losing a lot of its middle class. It was losing a lot of its population. It didn't have the greatest reputation. It was in in every aspect, it just seemed like it was a city that was on its way down. I don't want to say irrelevance. That's not true. But it was not what it was. It Mm -hmm. It had been worked over pretty hard. And so when I graduated, I had no intention of ever returning to Detroit. I'm like, I don't want to be in a city that's, you know, on its way down. I don't want to be in a city that... You know, people are trying to leave. It's, it's, there are more people leaving than are, are coming. Yeah. I want to be someplace where, you know, so I moved to Washington, D.C., and I loved it. It was great. That's sort of why it may sound hypocritical when I talk about wanting to be in Detroit now and not finding any other place better than, than that for my work. But when I when I came here, I, I couldn't, the first time, I couldn't wait to leave. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. This is true, but you know what? Also, what Muhammad Ali says, you know, if you if you think the same or has said, if you think the same way at twenty five, I mean, at fifty, as you did when you were twenty five, 
you haven't moved forward at all. You right. haven't learned anything. You haven't grown. You've wasted 25 years of your life. And so me, I'm a different person. I have different concerns. I have different issues. I have different pursuits. And Detroit is a is the best place for me to pursue those. Uh, I'm not the same person I was when I left Detroit, you know, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. What made you first want to get involved with architecture? So I grew up in Chicago, and Chicago's a, it still is a very segregated city. At the time, there were only two what we would call these today magnet high schools. They were they, what they called them then were called college prep. One was Lindblom Technical. That was on the south side. That was predominantly for African-Americans. And then there was Lane Tech on the north side, which was not for African-Americans. But the way they sort of got around that was that they argued that the curriculum was the same, the teaching was the same, the focus was the same. So it really doesn't matter where you go to. You're still going to get the same college prep education. And you had to take a test to get in it and all this sort of stuff. So so it was really it was an excellent school. I, I actually want to write something about that, but we can talk about that later. But as part of the curriculum, you had to take drafting. It was not it was non-negotiable. You had to take two years of drafting. And I was really good at it, and I could draw fairly well. I was always a good – I could always draw well, even when I was a child. So I, this was something I thought was easy to do. It was interesting to do. I liked sort of you know drawing homes and all that sort of stuff. And then I took a third year, which was an optional year, of just architectural drafting. And I said, oh, wow, this is, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. That's, I sort of came to it because of the school I was in, not because I – of any sort of focus of direction that says you want to be an architect. I was just exposed to it in high school and found that it was something that I thought was worth spending time on. And what kind of was the architecture community like back then? I'm going to draw a parallel to kind of some things now, but I'm interested to know when you sort of got into the industry, of course, getting out of school, what was it like for you back then? I went to, when I graduated from Lindblom, I didn't go directly to University of Detroit. I transferred to University of Detroit. I started out at Arizona State University okay. uh, in, in their architecture program. And their architecture program, so you went, you declared that you wanted to study architecture, but you had to be accepted into the architecture school. So the first couple years that you were there, everybody took all the same classes and you did all the same sort of architectural stuff. But then in your third year, you had to apply to take really specific architectural courses where you could get your degree. The first year, and I only took 45. The first year I applied, I was 47. The second year I applied, I was number 46. And I can tell you a story about how I talked to the dean, and the dean was not very supportive of me ever getting into the school. So at that point, I realized that I needed to transfer, and I transferred to University of Detroit. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is because I was in my third year of studying architecture. And remember, I had spent three years at Arizona State, so I had been in architecture. I've been studying architecture for six years before I'd ever met a black architect. Okay. And I had to go search him out. They happened to show, this is, what was it? Black Enterprise magazine. There was a black architect on the cover and he happened to live in Chicago. And I came home over the Christmas break and I said, I've got to find this guy. I got to talk to him. I got to find out, you know, what's it like? You know, why did you do this? And is it worth doing? I mean, I was enjoying it, but still. 
it was a life changing experience. It was one of those affirmation moments, like the conference. It was one of those, like, you can do this and, and you're not alone. And here's the history. And here are people who are doing this. And here are young folk who are doing this. And, and it was really, it was affirmation because right up until that point, I'd been like the only African-American in any class I was ever in, the only one. And it was tough. It was tough. Uh, so that's what the field was like when I was growing up. You had to sort of search for people of color. You had to search for affirmation. You didn't necessarily get it from your schoolmates or your classes or your teachers or the field. There's not a lot of us in this field right now. Um, and that number has remained flat for like 30 years. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, it, it has. Every other, I don't know if this is the right term or not, but every other ethnic group that is in the field of architecture has risen. Every single one of them, even Native Americans, has risen over the last 30 years. African Americans has remained flat. So the field was, you know, you had to, that's how the field was when I, uh -huh. when I got started. Why do you think it hasn't risen? Well, here's a good time to plug my book. <laughs> <laughs> Go right ahead. I talk about pretty much all the factors of why it hasn't risen in two books that I've written. The first one is um, entitled The Aesthetics of Equity, Notes on Race, Space, Architecture, and Music. There's a whole, there are two chapters on just the obstacles that people of color have to go through when they're pursuing a professional degree and a license in architecture. And the second book, which is called uh, Diversity Among Architects and uh, From Margin to Center. And in that book, I talk about specifically how the courses that we, we, we teach in architecture, the way we teach architecture and the way we think about practicing architecture is not very inviting to and I don't want to essentialize people of color. Not all people of color think the same. Not all the people of color come from the same place. Right, right. Not all of them have the same uh, aspirations. But in general, when you simply focus on 10% of the population, and, and that's at best, uh, there are other studies that say that architects only affect 2% of the population. When you see the clientele that you have to go after to sort of build the things that you want to build, that's a tough argument to make for a kid who's looking for a career choice and is going to plunk down, you know, $30,000 a year to jump in a pool where everybody's going after 2% of the population. That's just a hard argument to make, especially if you're first or second generation college student, which often people of color are. That's not really, you don't look at that as a great investment. Even if you are a designer, you know, at heart, you look like, I can't, I can't afford to do that. I need to do something else and pay the bills and I'll design on the side. So, you know, so this, in this, in this other book, I, I sort of talk about those things and like, this is how we have to change the academy if we want to change the profession. I had actually a, a black architect back on the show in January. She's an architect in Boston. Uh, her name is Aisha Densmore Bay. And we we talked about, you know, a little bit about what you just mentioned there about kind of the dearth of black people in the profession. And we also talked about how architecture is sometimes left out of conversations about design. I think that's true. And I don't know why that is, honestly, because because architecture, certainly the best of it, let's put it that way, the best of it is easily recognizable as a design pursuit. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you can look you can look at, you know, big box Walmarts and things of that nature, which, of course, have to involve you know architects in the process and look at that and sort of forget about architecture as an artistic pursuit. But the best of it, it just stands out. It's hard. It's hard to miss. It's surprising that you you, you that, she, that she mentions that it doesn't necessarily get discussed uh, in the design realm. I do think there's something to be said about the truth of that statement. Yeah, I mean, I often find when I'm, you know, I design websites and I do graphic design, even when I'm doing that for clients, I'm finding I have to give kind of an architecture analogy in order for them to get it. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm doing wireframes, I tell them, oh, this is like a blueprint. And if I'm doing mock-ups, I say, oh, this is like an artist rendering. You know, mm-hmm. it's not the final project just yet, but it's just so you can get an idea sort of what it is. And, and to be clear, I was the one that was saying that it seems like it's left out. She oh, felt okay. that she felt that they're kind of the same. Like it's she's like they're all. I think the analogy she used like they're all fingers on the same hand in terms of, you know, the work that you have to do, and the end result design is all through that. But even mm-hmm. like if I think about, let's say professional organizations like there's AIGA, mm-hmm. and there's AIA, mm-hmm. and I can understand a little bit why there might be that distinction because at least with AIA and architects, that's something where you have to be certified in order to really practice it. Whereas, you know, with if you're a graphic designer or something, you just need to have a good portfolio mm-hmm. and you can, you know, still go and get work, et cetera. I don't know. Yeah. That might be a really loose analogy there, but. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's the, the architecture profession. It has all the things <laughs> that that make it available to the public. Like it has magazines, it has exhibits, um, all the things that sort of support the production of the architectural object as an aesthetic, as something, as a, as a visual aesthetic, something to see, something to look at, something to admire. We have all those things that find their way into general, into the general public. So on the one hand, we're very ubiquitous. Like the magazines are there, the, the, the objects are there, but on the other hand, we are fairly innocuous because it's always around us. People as a society, we're always within it. So it's both easy to spot when it's done well, and it's also very easy to ignore when it's not done well. Yeah, um, yeah. No, that's that's very true. I mean, even you know, houses and and schools, et cetera. We all interact with buildings and things like that as we go through our regular everyday lives. So I totally agree with that. It's one of those art objects that is often meant to be inhabited. Mm-hmm. And, and so you, me, anyone, whether it's in the office or whether it's in a home or whether it's in a community center or whatever, it tends to invite people to put their own stamp on it. Like you put, you, you paint the room a different color or you put up something on the wall or you personalize something, your office space or your home or your community center or your, um, you know, or, or whatever, whatever place that you, that you have. It's another way in which we sort of become part of the life and part of people's lives and part of people's uh, perceptions so much so that we become background. You know, we not we don't necessarily stand out. You become background. And I actually don't think that's a bad thing, personally. Why is that? Well, I think 
Because I think architecture is for the client, it's for the user. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, don't, I think that the more that they can become part of your work, the more it means something to them. And for me, like when I practice, I'm all about a participatory process. Like I don't want to work for someone. I want to work with someone so that when when I walk away from the project or when a project is completed, they sort of feel some ownership. And like this is something and I think it's just an empowering feeling, not only for me as a designer, but also for the folks who are inhabiting any space that I have had the chance to to design. I want them to feel like that's part of me as well. It has some significance other than the fact that it keeps the rain off my head or uh, it's a place for my children to play. I want them to have, feel some deeper connection to the project. Yeah. And so that's why I don't feel think it's a bad thing when people sort of own your space and they sort of make your space part of their lives. I think it's a problem when they have to alter it to do that. Then that means you didn't do it well. Yeah. But if folks sort of making that space theirs, no, I'm all for that. Now, a lot of the work that you're doing now is as an academic, you're a professor, you teach architecture, mm-hmm. you teach design. Tell me a little bit more about that. Like, where do you see kind of design education going in that route? I can tell you where I would like to see it go. Okay. Um, for and again, I'm I'm speaking specifically about architecture, but I know that graphic designers have their own version of this. I know product designers have their own version of this. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept or the field of public interest design. Public interest design. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's it's PID, and basically, it comes from this idea that I was just mentioning before that you sort of design with people is a participatory process. It is a, it's an engaged process. It's a process where the designer comes to the table with an expertise, a set of skills, but those skills are connected to other skills that come directly from a community or from a place. So they don't come in as the the know-all and be-all and end-all. They come in as part of a team and they recognize sort of local knowledge, local expertise, and you put those things together and it becomes a very powerful way to go about doing work. And so that sort of sits at the, the, the that's one of the tenets of sort of public interest, of public interest design. Mm-hmm. Another, another tenet is that it is unabashedly about social justice. That's what it is about. It was born out of the civil rights movement. It was, yeah, it was born, yeah, the, 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 earlier, the earlier versions of this in architecture, yes, was definitely born out of the, and lots of folks point to 1968 when, what's the gentleman saying, Whitney Young, who was the executive director of the National Urban League, spoke to the AIA and really just raked them over the coals and said, <laughs> you know, he did. He said, you know, we have these, basically he said, we have these large cities and they're primarily people of color in those cities. And then we have these white suburbs all around the city. So he basically said this was a white noose hung around the neck of the city. I mean, he let them have it. And that was the beginning of people within the architectural profession to really begin to think about what is our social role 
What is our social responsibility? And so public interest design is part of that lineage. And so what I find today, though, and what I would like to see today in architectural education, uh, specifically architectural education, is we have a lot of available tools these days. We've got, you know, you can mass fabricate lots of things. We can write a script and let the computer sort of create as many variations of a theme as we possibly can. So we have the ability to do the kind of work and do it quickly in a way that we have never had before. And and we make beautiful forms out of this. Zaha Hadid and, and, and Frank Geary and Herzog and Dumont, they make these beautiful buildings, beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you know that that was sort of enhanced by technology, by digital technology, by software programs. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm wondering is if we can, what I would like to see is let's take that kind of ability, that kind of technology, and not do something that enhances sort of visual aesthetics, which is fine. I want to, I want visible ethics in design. So let's take that technology and apply it to a social problem. Let's take that kind of thinking and apply it to, you know, water transportation systems. Let's take that kind of technology and thinking and apply it to water purification systems, Mm -hmm. to food delivery. Let's take our design abilities and the technology that we have and apply it to something that matters. Yeah. And so that's that's what I would like to see happen in design education. But that requires a retooling of what you think the role of the architect is and mm-hmm. what the ar- architectural object is. If you think the object is always a building, then you're never going to you're never going to do the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. But if you think that architecture is a process, hmm. then architecture as a verb, not as architecture as a noun. No, if you think yeah. of architecture as a verb, then all these things come to pass. And so that's what I would like to see happen. I mean, that's a, a really profound way to, to look at it. I mean, and if I can, you know, extrapolate a little bit to just kind of design in general, I would almost kind of think of that the same way. I know that I... I talk to a lot of students, I talk to design educators, and, you know, many students will tell me when they graduate, they don't feel like when they get out in the world that they're sort of prepared for the working world. They may feel like they only know how to do one or two things, and it's only through, I think, trial and error and and maybe just more work, et cetera, how they can take the skills that they've learned and, and kind of extrapolate them into other sorts of areas. I know that we see programs like, say, Code for America. IDEO, I think, has some stuff around this with design thinking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. taking Absolutely. those concepts of design and then using them in other ways that are not just on a screen or right. a logo or a branding right. you know, activity or something. It's actually using it, like you said, for real world things, using it for some level of social impact. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's, you know, and I I found over the last maybe five, six, maybe even 10 years, I've been, I teach a course called Design Activism and Social Justice, and where I sort of introduce students to sort of this lineage of responsibility in architecture, responsibility in urban design and urban planning, and, and how the lessons that we've learned and what's available now, 
And the reason I, well, first of all, I teach it because I enjoy it. And that's the kind of stuff that I do. But I also teach it because there's a hunger for that in today's students. So, uh, folks, students want to, not more students are interested in thinking about a career that is meaningful. Like they don't want to do the traditional route of having to do something for three years and I get my license and then maybe I'll move up in the office or maybe I'll get a chance to design something or maybe, I mean, that's sort of a traditional route and I don't necessarily knock it. I took it myself, but I think students today are impatient. They're impatient to make a difference mm-hmm. and they're, they're driven to make a difference. So classes like mine, classes like the fabrication class that we have at, at Michigan allows them to sort of put that impatience and that and their desire for, you know, sort of for, let's, for lack of a better term for social justice. It allows them to put those two things together and and think about how they can make a career from that. Uh, the, the thing that tends to hold them back from doing that is they ask the question, well, will I be an architect if I do this? Will I get my license if I do this? And so that's where we as educators and as professionals, that's where we should be coming in and saying, yes, you can. And here is how. And we've got to make that path for them. That's what I would like to see. You mentioned the AIA. I brought up the AIA, too, and I feel like I'll be remiss if I didn't ask you something about kind of the current state of the AIA. Uh, <laughs> it, it has come under fire recently, I'd say maybe within the past year, for a couple mm-hmm. of things, most notably sort of tacitly endorsing our current president on behalf of the organization's members. Sure. And most recently about having former First Lady Michelle Obama give a keynote speech at the annual AIA conference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm a member of, of AIGA. I've volunteered for AIGA for several years. And it, it feels to me like design organizations have this intrinsic problem with diversity that I, I think they just can't get over in some sort of way. I don't know if that's something that you've noticed with AIA or not. It's certainly something I've noticed with AIGA. And I mean, to, to AIGA's credit, they are trying. I am a member of the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force. That's a part of AIGA. So I'm speaking on this with some level of kind of inside, you know, insider knowledge, so to speak. But where do you think that comes from? Why do you think that's the case? I know that these organizations are supposed to holistically be professional organizations about perpetuating the use of the craft throughout organizations and schools, et cetera. But when diversity comes into the mix, I don't know. It just kind of, I don't know what the problem is. Well, I think it kind of goes, I, I can answer this a couple of ways. One, you have to remember, like you, you hit it on the head. So these are professional organizations and ultimately these professions are tied, like most professions, they're tied to capital. You got to pay the bills. You got to you have to get the clients. You've got to pay your employees. You got to pay, you know, for your equipment. And so it often doesn't help the bottom line to be overtly political. Now, having said that, the flip side of that is this specifically for professions that require a license. Those professions the, the reason you're required 
to have a license is because you get a lot of autonomy, right? No one tells architects what to teach in school. No one tells the profession or the discipline what students need to know. No one tells them how long they have to be in school. All that is, is something that we, we as a profession get to choose. But the reason you're allowed to do that is because the flip side of that is because that's a monopoly and a monopoly in a capitalistic society is not supposed to happen. So the way we get around that is that we promise to serve everybody. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we don't hoard our knowledge. We don't hoard our skills. We use it for the common good. That's what this is, the so-called social contract. Okay. now it's still hard for that to be put into practice. Because someone's got to pay for that. And so when you think about professional organization, when you think about the AIA, it's, it's very hard for them to, for lack of a better term, bite the hand that feeds them. Hence the, the sort of kowtowing to the recent election. Because if you read the statement, it was all about spending money on infrastructure. We've got a client. We've got money. We've got that's what we have. Mm-hmm. And so the social part of it sort of fell apart. It, it loses its power and it, or it lost its power in that sense. So when you have architects going like, no, we got to think about maybe not doing the wall. We got to think about maybe no more doing no more prisons. We have to think about, no, not buying into this narrative that number 45 is handing out. Mm-hmm. But those are the architects who are actually doing what the profession should be doing. They are thinking about everybody. But that only happens, you know, that only happens in in um, extraordinary circumstances. It should happen every day in every project and every conversation within the profession. But at least in this extraordinary circumstance, it actually came to pass. So that was a very, very hopeful moment for me within the profession, because if we're just if we're just doing what our clients tell us to do because we need the funds to stay open, then how is that any different than I mean, I don't want to use uh, problematic terms on your, on your podcast, but how is that different than being you're just sort of selling yourself, right? You're just yeah. sort of selling your skills. You're not bringing anything to the table, no ethical position, no moral position. It's just all about money. You're just a contractor. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean like a contractor where you're building something, but you're just you're just selling uh, your skills. Yeah, you're just that, a hired hand. That's, that's, that's a better term, right. And I don't want to be just a hired hand. I don't think professions should be a hired hand. That you, you, you are held to a higher standard. And so the question that you mentioned that got us into this was about the diversity thing. I think diversity also becomes one of those social positions that if we're talking about money and the ties to keeping your doors open and your clients and stuff like that, we don't stand up for that because that also can be very problematic for you. We can do lip service to it point to people and say, look, we are being diverse. Like the AIA just recently gave uh, Paul Williams, an African-American architect who's been dead for 50 years. They finally gave him uh, a medal of honor Mm -hmm. because, okay, now we want to recognize people of color. Well, that's very nice of you, but it would be nice if you give it to people when they're alive, when it does, when it does something. But see, it's hard to do it at that point. 
because then you're recognizing that there is – okay, I'll just stop. Uh, no, I guess you're saying you're recognizing <laughs> that there's a disparity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then if you recognize it, then you have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And so they would just rather not recognize it. Wow. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head there. That's that's absolutely it. It took a long time to get there, but we got there. <laughs> <laughs> what is your dream project? And, and I'm asking this, you know, on the on the cusp of you winning this prestigious award. Like what's what's your dream project? What's next for you? Well, I've got a couple projects that I'm, I'm working on at the moment. One, I'm not quite sure I'm at liberty to talk about, but it has to do with, uh, and broadly, it has to do with looking at Detroit, the city of Detroit, as a um, site for green infrastructure. Like I mentioned earlier before about the city having an abundance of land, and so I'm, I'm working on doing some research and working on a project design that deals with the city as a green infrastructure project. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. I've, I've got a couple of writing projects on the table as well. I'm writing about, currently writing about the Smithsonian National African American Museum of History and Culture that was just built. Yeah. On I'm sort of chronicling its journey from 1915 to its opening in 2017, so over 100 years. So I'm, I'm writing about that, and I've got another book on the on on the table that I'm sort of working on at the moment that deals specifically with hip hop architecture. So those are the things that I'm doing that are keeping me busy at the moment. Is the the hip hop architecture? Are you talking with Michael Ford about that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, Michael, I know Michael uh, very well. He's also a University of Detroit grad, just to say. <laughs> and he and I were on a panel just this uh, past March at uh, South by Southwest okay. uh, on, on, on hip-hop architecture. He's got a project in the Bronx that he's working on right now, and I've, I've been in some of the early conversations about that project as well, which is a Universal Hip-Hop Museum. But yeah, I know oh, Mike wow. uh, Mike very well. Are you where you wanted to be at in this stage in your life? When you look back at at your accomplishments, and you know, even now with this recent award, when you sort of take in your whole body of work, is this kind of where you wanted to be? You know, it's funny. I don't know that I had a plan. Honestly, I never thought that I would spend certainly not at this stage in my life spend the majority of my time for lack of a return, for lack of a better term, being a theorist. I never thought I would be writing as much as I'm writing. I'm enjoying it immensely, but that was never part of my plan. My part of my plan was to, you know, I go back to what I was mentioning before about sort of my, your traditional trek, your traditional journey through architecture. You know, I, I figured by now I'd if I had a plan at all, it was to have a firm, do really nice work, and get recognized for that. That was that was as far as my plan went. And so it's interesting at this point in my career to turn around and look back and see how maybe far away from that thing I am now. And But I don't know that I would, I would change anything. I really didn't have a plan coming in. I just wanted to do architecture. That was about as far as it went. And all I knew was to do architecture, you had to be in an office 
and to do the architecture I wanted. I wanted to be the person who ran the office. I don't want to be told what to do. I wanted to do it myself. And that was as far as I went. And the more I was in the field, the more avenues I saw that were available to me to do interesting work, the further and further I got away from that earlier idea of having to have an office and do and find clients and do work. I realized you can find your own work and you can find your own way to get that funded. You can write about architecture. You can teach it. So when those things started opening up for me, I pursued them. I pursued every single one of them whenever they came about because I didn't have a plan. And so now turning around, looking back, I see them really far away from where I started, but I'm happy to be far away from where I started. So it's been a good ride. It's been a very good ride, and I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what that next opening is going to be tomorrow. But if it opens up, I can guarantee you, I'm going to take it because it's worked so far. Well, just to you know, kind of wrap things up here. Where can our audience find out more about you, about your work, your books, and everything? Where can they find all that online? Okay, this should be up and running by the time the podcast comes out. So, be <laughs> www.cl Wilkes. C-L-W-I-L-K-S dot com. You can find me at the University of Michigan College of Architecture website. That's a little longer URL, and I don't know that one on hand, but you can certainly just find College of Architecture and then go to the faculty directory, and there's a link to me there. You can find me on Twitter at D-R-C-L Wilkes, so Dr. C-L Wilkes. I think uh, Instagram at the same name. D-R-C-L Wilkes. I think that's it. I think that's it. And the books are on Amazon. You can go to Amazon and and find the books there. All right. And we'll make sure to link all of that in the show notes so people can definitely check that out. Well, Craig, thank you so much for taking time out of your, your schedule to talk to me today. Of course, congratulations on your National Design Award win for that. I think a lot of what you mentioned here is something that is just important for designers as a whole to think about is Mm -hmm. how do you take the skills that you have and use them for the greater good? Um, It it seems like this is something which has been a prevalent thread throughout your work. And certainly it has taken you far. It's taking you to where you are now, but I think it's important now when we look at this, you know, and I want to say this political climate, but I think we just look at the world that we're in today. It can't just be about using the skills that you have to, get a job or to, you know what I mean? To mm-hmm. bring a website or something. It's got to be, mm-hmm. how are you giving back? How are you contributing to the world that you're living in? And so I'm really just honored and glad to have you on the show again. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I am as honored to have been asked and hopefully that this rambling conversation, you could pull something out <laughs> of it. I'm amazed at your, at your skill set. Thoughts of love are in. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Craig Wilkins and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Craig and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as showing how internal design critiques work at Facebook, sharing resources about VR and other cutting-edge tech, and by giving away great tools and resources like Origami Studio, popular device templates for Photoshop and Sketch, 
and even diverse hands for mock-ups. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 15 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to grow sales and to make money in their sleep. MailChimp has really grown from being just an email service provider to becoming your one-stop place for marketing your business. So aside from sending email, it ties into hundreds of other services like Hootsuite for social media management, Zapier for other third-party integrations, Salesforce as a CRM, Eventbrite if you sell tickets to events, and many, many others. Get everything you need all in one place and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. With free private domain registration and your choice of domains across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there, how can you turn that down? Just go to hover.com forward slash revision path and you can get 10% off on your first purchase. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily without having to worry about hosting. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all their hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps us out by bumping up the podcast in the rankings for other design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design strategy and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. You know, now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. Pledge level started just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.